Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. This is episode 49. I'm coming to you from the shores of Lake Champlain on the New York side. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together to share stories and make connections. It doesn't matter if you're an expert or a novice. It doesn't matter if you like wrenching, riding, or collecting more. If you smile when you think about a bicycle, you're in the right place. This time we talk about landmarks seen while cycling, talk to Chris Stevens from the Discovery Channel, and we also hear a little bit about mountain biking in France. You have a lot of podcasts that you could be listening to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. So in terms of family folklore, every family's got a little bit of folklore. Mine is that I could, for a while, back in the day, navigate based on any Wendy's that I've ever been to. Like pigeons, bees, and ants, I could somehow use hamburger stand locations to figure out where I was. I'm not even sure how it worked. It was kind of like if I was near any Wendy's I'd ever been to, I could triangulate my position somehow. I, I don't know. It might have something to do with the other family folklore of me being able to feed three children and myself on $11 worth the change from my minivan. That included using the free frosty keychains for dessert. So whenever I try to take my kids on a $0 adventure, I guess I subconsciously tried to plan out a Wendy's stop at some point because I knew I could get away with that. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, once, with screaming children in the back, being in the middle of farm country on an exit that looked like it had nothing off of it, I told my wife, get off here. And at that point, we went down the road just a little bit, and there was a Wendy's. And a restroom for the screaming kids. I'd apparently been to that Wendy's four or five years earlier once, on the way back at night, from visiting her family in Canada. Anyway, I guess the point is landmarks are easier for me to remember than street names or the names of places. And I think I'm not alone because people often talk about landmarks. And I'm talking about the ones that aren't on any map. The old abandoned zoo in the woods off of Route 4 or 10, I think. I don't even know the number, but I know about the abandoned zoo in the woods. It's pretty creepy. Like horror movie creepy, like giant cages overgrown all on the sides like a horror movie. But even though it would make perfect sense, nobody's going to name that nice little walking park hella creepy abandoned zoo walking nature area. Everybody describes it like that, but I guess it's just not done to name it what it reminds people of. Everybody who's ever been there knows exactly where I'm talking about, even though you won't find that name on any map. We could even say, let's go meet there if we were going to do some Scooby-Doo LARPing. 
Whether we realize it or not, we use those type of designations for places all the time in cycling. I mean, once you get to the parking lot for mountain bike trails, apart from using latitude and longitude and having a super accurate GPS, people don't really know where you are on that trail unless you use landmarks to describe it, such as, I'm over by the chimney. The chimney is a local place where if you say mountain biking in the chimney, people know where you're talking about because there's an old chimney out in the middle of the woods. I recently went to upstate New York just to get away at a cabin up there, found some trails, and then posted a picture of a 1950s Chrysler, an old wrecked car in the woods, and somebody messaged me shortly after saying, I know exactly where you are. P.S. Shout out to Andy McDougall who figured that out. Which is pretty good, seeing as I didn't know the road that I was on or the name of the little park that I was in. But these landmarks are like durable ephemera that last for a generation. There is a huge tree tumor at a park near me. And everyone who's gone by it knows when you talk about the huge tree tumor at Highlands. It's like a giant beach ball. They know exactly where you're talking about and can meet you there. But sadly, even this tree tumor, which has been there for as long as I can remember, sadly got destroyed and knocked down during a recent storm. An old bicycle so rusted it was totally unusable was chained to a tree as a landmark as well. That eventually got so rusty and tetanus dangery looking that somebody removed it. Sometimes rusty objects just dissolve over time. It takes years, but it happens. But for the window of a lifetime, you have a common language with other people who go exploring in the same places you do. And it's not exclusive to mountain biking. Once you're on a greenway, away from intersections, there's not a lot of ways to tell where exactly you are to meet up with somebody or just to describe where you are unless you use one of those landmarks. There's an abandoned Volkswagen bug in Farmington right off of the greenway. I'm sure that there's some people who think, ew, it's a big piece of trash, but for most of the people like me, it's a beautiful derelict. It's like rusty art that we can all communicate with. So whether they're runes, abandoned objects, places of personal historical significance, like that place where my finger got chopped off that time, or that place where Bobby tried to clear that jump, or natural wonders. I want to ask you guys to start sharing some stories about your landmarks while cycling, whether they be on the trail, greenway, or road, whether they're known by you and a friend only or by thousands. Landmarks make some great stories. Landmarks while cycling. You can either message me on any of the social media or you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. If you want to talk about it, we can easily record over the phone. It's not live, so there's no pressure, except for the pressure for me to edit it and produce it and get it on the air. I want to give partial credit for this idea to my middle daughter, Waverly, who one day a couple weeks ago gave me directions to get back home that involved no proper names. The directions involved turning at the ice cream place and then going up Terra Mountain. And when she said Terra Mountain, I knew exactly what she was talking about teaching my kids to drive, it's been one of the scariest places to go down. So over the next month or so, please think about your favorite cycling landmarks. Looking forward to hearing from you.
So I've been watching an embarrassing amount of TV since this whole situation started. I do get caught up in reality shows quite a bit and end up binge watching them. I'm all caught up with however many years of American Pickers there are. I've gone through car shows, hotel shows, shows where they fix up restaurants, shows where they take on businesses in trouble. I have noticed that there's not many shows involving bicycles, even though there's a huge portion of the population that's interested in bicycles. So if you're in a position to do something about it, you got my email, bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. But I was really surprised and kind of flattered that one of the people from these reality shows reached out to me about sharing some bicycle stories on the show. And of course, I went back and re-binged watched all of those episodes. Chris Stevens has a show on the Discovery Channel that he's a part of called Garage Rehab, where they go into failing garages and they help them to reorganize, declutter, and come up with a solid business plan. You would think he lives, eats, and breathes cars, but he's a huge self-described bike nerd. His stories run the gamut, from finding and swapping and trading bikes to growing up right next to one of the best greenways in New England. He hits every style from BMXs to fixed gears. So let's catch up with Chris Stevens' Bicycle Stories. My name is Chris Stevens, and I am a co-host for the Discovery Channel on a TV show called Garage Rehab. And when I'm not filming or working on cars, I'm a huge bicycle nerd. I love it. Everything I can do with bikes, whether it be BMX bikes, mountain bikes, or road bikes, kind of need to be on a bike every day. It's like my little therapy or like my little gym session. Yeah, I mean, at first I was like, hey, this is really cool, but why is he calling me? (laughs) Does he think it's motorcycles? Does he think it's, you know, no, no, he loves bikes. It's yeah, no. okay. Yeah, you know, a friend turned me on to Bike Karma because they were like, hey, uh, you know, Mike Wolf just had this awesome interview with this podcast. So I gave it a listen because out of all the TV personalities that are out there, and there's a lot of them, a lot of them are fake. I mean, 90% of them are fake. The people you meet are fake. The TV shows are fake, all this stuff. But something about Mike Wolf seemed very real from the beginning. And he made sure to keep it real. And showing his passion for bikes through television is actually pretty hard to do. And I think he's done a really good job at it. So I love the fact that you're able to kind of like extract that, those cool stories and information that he has and put it out there for us to listen to because, you know, somebody might not be into antiques or this kind of bike or this or that, but for him to talk about like the early days of mountain biking and like the struggles it took him to become a dealer and the way he drove around, I mean, that kind of like, it, it was really refreshing to hear that. So, you know, thanks for putting that out there for us to listen to. Wow, thank you. Wow, it does make me thrilled when people actually tell me they like to listen to my stuff. If you want to check out that episode that he's talking about, it's episode 34. But I also realized I had a chance to talk to somebody who had listened to the episode about it and just how earnestly blown away I was by how much Mike Wolf actually knows about bicycles and can recall like that. Sometimes they just blow you away with how much they know. You know, oh, yeah. and Mike Wolf was one of those guys. There's another guy, Chris Brown, who's been on the show doing skits and stuff. He's just a, a regular guy, but when you talk to him, they like rattle off all this knowledge and and you know it's true because you've heard of it and you're just like you are faster than google how is that possible (laughs) you know and i think to myself 
damn, you know, if if I start right now, I could never get that much knowledge inside my head and be able to manage it. You know, so that was that was one of the things going through my head with him is just being being so blown away that you're like this guy knows so much about freaking bikes. It's insane. It's like I just it's like staring off of a cliff and looking into a, a the Grand Canyon of like facts. You know? It's like wow. Right. Yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate that. So let's hear your story. So we watch the show, and in your show, you go into garages, and you basically... Well, yeah, garage rehab is we travel all around the country. We're looking for garages that are struggling, right? It doesn't always have to be messy, but they have to, at some point, went off track in their business plan. So we want to come in there, and we want to completely revamp them, bring them up to modern-day status with good equipment and money-making pieces of equipment. A lot of people have equipment that they don't use, so therefore it doesn't make money. Or they have a car or anything. I mean, even just junk inside their garage that takes up valuable shop space. I'm able to figure out, you know, per square footage, how much that costs that person, whether they're renting it or leasing it, whatever it may be. I can figure out that, okay, yeah, you got this old Camaro sitting in the corner, but that old Camaro is like 150 bucks a month per square foot. You know what I mean? Like, because of the size mm-hmm. and space of it. So eventually, it ends up costing you more money than it would be to just let it go. Not to mention the time and money that it's going to take you to finish one of these cars. So I do like to go in there. I mean, I grew up in independent shops. And so for me, it was kind of second nature when this job title came around from the Discovery Channel. I'm like, oh, this is perfect for me. But just so everybody that's listening understands, those shops, when we leave, yeah, they're perfect and clean and everything else. But I don't expect them to keep it that way 100%. I mean, a working shop should have some tools around. And obviously, it's going to be dirty because working on anything, whether it's bikes or cars, is going to be a little dirty and a little disorganized. And... I actually own my own shop myself. I've had for about 17 years now here in Frederick, Maryland, and I restore uh, classic European cars. So I understand what clutter is all about, but it's the fact that you need to move the clutter, you know, and there's a buyer for everybody. They always say there's an ass for every seat, and that's the same thing with bicycles. I see people that collect so many bicycles and they don't know what to do with them and they like to see them hanging on the wall or one day you know this bike takes them to the bar but this bike is good for drinking coffee and this bike's good for riding the canal i mean they have a, a bike for everything right and i completely understand that but what i'm good at is is moving things on you know finding value in anything whether it's sitting on a shelf or parked in the corner car or bicycle or motorcycle what have you so yeah the tv show's great um and there's actually been some little bike stories within there like i remember one time i was doing a uh I think it was called Bremen, Georgia. It's right outside of Atlanta. And I walked into this shop, and it was a mess. It was owned by veterans. It was a nonprofit garage, but it was a disaster. I mean, like old couches in the office that no, you know, no customer should ever sit on kind of thing. Just gross. But I did see, I think it was the 1986 or 1987 GT BMX bike former. And 
right when I saw that like sky blue with the yellow decals and their specific five spoke GT Max, I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. And the first thing I'm thinking is like, would you sell it to me? And of course it's, oh, I'm going to build it one day and I'm going to ride it again. And, you know, the, the same story we always hear. And sure enough, it went into a giant Rubbermaid box and I never saw it again. You know, they took it home. Of course we didn't throw it out, but yes, it, uh, there are little bike stores here and there or when I'm doing these episodes I don't have a bike on me so a lot of times I'll go and either rent a bicycle you know if we're in Venice California I rented a beach cruiser with an electric motor on it to go see like all the different Venice canals and everything so I still find a way to get on my pedal power so it's pretty cool okay so you're probably thinking okay so you know we got this guy he's on television it's a car show it's a garage show and I want to just say that in a weird kind of roundabout way Bicycles did bring me to this point in my life. And it all started where, yes, I grew up in Maryland, but my parents were divorced and my father lived in Western Massachusetts, right at uh, Amherst College over there. So in the summers, I'd spend all summer up there with him in Massachusetts. And I figured out that by owning a bicycle, since I wasn't old enough to drive, I was probably, you know, 13, probably like between 12 and 15 years old around that time wasn't old enough to drive so I got myself a first BMX bike and I believe it was a Haro it was a weird model called a DV8 not a lot of people heard about it but it was right when that Monocue you know solid frame design was coming out with it didn't have a top tube or down tube it was just one tube that kind of split off into a Y I, I know Specialized used it and some other companies so it was this little BMX bike and I would travel from where we lived in Amherst to my father's independent car garage in Northampton, Massachusetts. And they had a rail trail, which was, you know, an old railroad track that's been paved and is great for cycling and walking and everything else. And I just remember that I was having the time of my life just every morning riding all that way, which for me felt like hours. It was a pretty long distance and as a young teenager to do it, but my dad trusted me and Massachusetts was so ahead of their time where, you know, people were bike friendly and bike rides were such a huge thing even in the mid 90s uh that's what we're talking you know right around 94 95 so i'd ride to his shop and i would do some work on cars and at the end of the day i would leave like an hour early so we'd get home at the same time and i'd ride my bike back and that bike path would have little ice cream shops and little restaurants that it would pass and they'd have these little exits to get to the back of the restaurant so only the cyclists can kind of come down there and use the picnic tables so I spent this whole time riding every day, every summer, and um, it, it was just amazing, just the freedom that you get from a bicycle. You know, because at, at between 13 and 16, there's really no way to, to leave your house. I mean, I guess you could take a bus or public transportation, but really the bicycle was like the safest and most fun thing to do. So I knew that that bike could take me anywhere I wanted to go. Since he was, uh, you know, an automotive repair shop, I learned how to wrench on my bike before I had to learn to wrench on cars. So I would, you know, obviously do my own chains, and I would get a new frame and swap the frame out, and then I would chop the seat post down so it was, like, super slammed looking, which was cool for BMX bikes back then, and cut the handlebars real narrow. I guess I progressed from riding these bikes and kind of riding what's nowadays called street. At the time, I, I don't really know if there was street. You either had freestyle or racing BMX. 
Sidebride Street in their little downtown Northampton, Massachusetts. And he was like, well, maybe we should start racing BMX. I said, oh, it's my dream, you know, collecting BMX Plus magazines. Everybody raced. And at the time, it was a guy named Gary Ellis who raced for GT. I think he was number one in the nation. And so I wanted to be like Gary Ellis. And for freestyle, I wanted to be like Dave Mira from Haro and Matt Hoffman from Hoffman Bikes. Those were those were like my idols growing up. So I started racing for the NBL, which is the National Bicycle League up there. And he would take me there in the evenings, and we had to buy the helmet and all the, the number plates and all the gear. It was kind of expensive, but it, it was a fun hobby to bring the family together. So at the end of the summer, here I am, like, racing BMX, riding bikes all the time, and I'd come back to my mom's place in, uh, in Petersburg, Maryland. <laughs> and she was like, where are you going on your bike? I'm like, I'm going to go to a friend's house. And it was just different rules, you know, because different parents had different rules. But they ended up chilling out, and I ended up, you know, riding to all my friends' houses, and we were actually only about eight miles from a really famous bicycle shop called Rockville BMX. And for the East Coast, I mean, this was like the bike shop to get all your BMX parts, and I believe Hutch BMX, which is now a huge collector piece, but they were out of Baltimore, Maryland, and their, like, main distributor was Rockville BMX. So they'd have these little BMX shows, and we'd go to there. So my mom did a, a really good job at, at keeping me occupied with my bike habit, and she would send off money mail orders to buy me, like, you know, new parts and jerseys and cool backpacks to look the part when I was in middle school because I wanted to be, like, full BMX. Now, how it brings me to this point is, like, I, I rode BMX so heavily and so hard that when I turned 16, it was time to drive a car. And then the passion for cars kind of took over, and the bikes kind of would sit and collect dust in the garage. And I probably didn't pick up the bike hobby again until I was about 18, 19 years old. And that's when I pulled the bike back out of the attic, started kind of trying to trying to rebuild those memories I had when I was younger without the responsibilities and without insurance and car payments and all those other things. So I would start kind of building bikes again. And ever since then, no matter what I'm doing, I'm either, you know, buying mountain bikes and uh, right now, you know, my, my big thing is the fixed gear bicycle. You know, I, I buy old track bikes from the 70s and 80s and these are, they look like a road bike, but they don't have any brakes and they don't have any derailers or any gears and they're just a single speed bike in its rawest form. And for me, that's as close as I can get to riding BMX, you know, because I'm, I'm on the larger side. I'm six foot two. I'm 190 pounds. So sometimes when I get on the little 20 inch BMX bikes now, it just it doesn't feel very comfortable. But when I sit on these like these tall 58 centimeter, 59 centimeter track bike, I go right back to when I was a kid. You know, riding these downtown areas of Maryland or going into DC. I have a lot of friends that are still to this day bike messengers. Yeah, they're still bike messengers, and they've been doing it since the 80s. So I, I get to ride with those guys and. We do all the different alley cats through Baltimore, Maryland, D.C., and then we've had a couple out here on, you know, we're out here in western Maryland. And it's it's just amazing that no matter what, you know, the, the bicycle to me stands for one word, and that has always been freedom. It was a way for me to go somewhere that I wasn't able to go before. And unlike cars, they don't require, like, they don't give you the issues. They don't ever have to start. You know, they don't ever have to run out of gas. They always start for you. There's no electrical gremlins. You know, there's no combustion chamber. It's nothing. It's just a bicycle. You Almost like to the point where you can just fill up the tubes, throw your gear on, and you're out on the road within seconds. And to me, that still brings the most amount of joy. And cars, 
cars are still a huge part of my life, but it's something about that bicycle that can just get you out there, get you out on the open road, or get you into the woods with, you know, becoming one with nature and the quietness that a bicycle can give you too, because it's almost like tunnel vision, you know, it's just you on that piece of machine. So whether you're into, you know, old Schwinn pea pickers or vintage Italian road bikes or, you know, gravel grind bikes or, or you know, all these different kinds of styles of bikes, I mean, it's, we're all doing it for the same thing. It's a passion. It's a way to kind of exercise. It's a therapy. It's, it kind of marked all the boxes and it's not really an expensive sport. So yeah, you know, starting from a kid with the BMX, working up to, you know, fixed gear, mountain bike, track bikes. And, uh, now I'm still doing it, you know, 36 years old. I turned 37 next week. So I'm definitely like a nineties kid. So it was like the grunge era baggy jeans and stuff. So it was either skateboarding or BMX. And, uh, to this day, I still have a BMX bike hanging in my garage. So the audio cuts out at this point, but I pretty much told him that I know exactly the path he's talking about. And I used to drive a couple hours across the state and just up into Massachusetts to be able to get to this bike path way back in the day. It was one of the first and still remains one of the best bike paths I've ever been on. It was fun. It was good. But, you know, I didn't know the difference because it's not that I like nowadays. know the difference. Now I know they were ahead of their time because in my area here huge cycling community and we can't we can't get together a rail trail and we have old railroads that aren't being used they can't put together the money but yet here was massachusetts they had little bicycle pump areas this is stuff i'm starting to see nowadays and this is 25 years ago they were doing it i mean i, I really can't believe how ahead of how ahead of time they were and i was able to go ride through amherst college and you know i'd love to see the fraternities with their couches on their roof and then they have these movie nights down in the middle common and you could ride your bike around everything was safe you didn't have to worry about even locking up your bike and then i remember the vans warp tour came into town and they had matt hoffman riding the bike and they had mighty mighty boston playing and sublime wasn't even the headline but they were playing and my dad was like yeah go ahead you know get tickets and ride down there and i was probably 13 years old <laughs> and it was cool, you know, and so I, I rode down there and I got all these autographs. I had my number plate on the front of my bike because I raced. So I got all these autographs from all these people and you could take photos at the 1-800-COLLECT booths because like, they always sponsored all the freestyle ramp trick guys. And I don't know, it, it was just a different time. I guess it was like when people talk about the 60s, like when, when my parents would talk about the 60s, it was like a little more free and something about New England always felt free every time and i haven't been back there in many many years but you know growing up in the dc area no it's congested down here and there's a there's, you know some snobbery when it comes to cycling but in massachusetts there wasn't everybody was cool and it didn't and still you know it doesn't really matter what you ride you could ride any kind of bike as long as it gets you out there and puts a smile on your face that's what it's all about i mean you, it, it almost takes like a bike ride to figure out what you're into like, are you going to be doing this for a long time? And nowadays with the coronavirus, I mean, everybody wants to get on a bike. And everybody's asking you, like, Chris, do you have any extra bikes? Like, do you, you know, do you sell any? And I think, I, I think I've gotten rid of three bikes out of my garage. I was just like, yeah, sure. You know, if it gets you out on the trails, go ahead, you know. And I'll put together, like, these cool, like, we call them gravel grind bikes. But they're, like, these gravel bikes because we're right next to 
the Potomac River. And it's called the CNO Canal. And, uh, yeah, it goes, like, from D.C., I think, all the way to Ohio or Cumberland Gap. I mean, it, it goes a long way. So we get a lot of people riding that path, which is cool. One day we'll have the paved path like Massachusetts. Swap meet out here, is called, and I think it actually travels up to you guys, too, but it's called Stop, Swap, and Save. Um, but we have that. Oh, it's. It is fantastic. So we get up really early in the morning. We come out there, and uh, I daily drive a BMW wagon. So I got two bike racks on the top, and then with the wagon space, you can sit, like, two bikes in the back of that. So I'll go up there, and I'm always buying frames and parts. And every year, it started becoming less and less. And this was right before the corona thing happened. This was in February. So about a month before it happened, I went up there. I didn't really find anything. I found a lot of new parts and new takeoff stuff. And then, you know, I was with some friends. They were like, what are you looking for? I was like, I'm looking for a new track bike frame. And sure enough, right before I left, there was a, like, a bright royal blue DiBernardi 58-centimeter steel track bike for sale hanging. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, dude. This is, like, the perfect bike what I wanted to build. I wanted to build a vintage bike or vintage look like that was actually new technology and new welds. So Tibonardi kind of took that design, especially that crazy fixed gear scene that happened in the mid-2000s. They started building bikes, like track bikes, with horizontal dropouts. And so it's welding from 2007, and it's still like the Italian craftsmanship, but I guess because the trends are kind of dying now with the fixed gear scene, I got the frame for 80 bucks. And I thought I went, no. oh, oh, yeah, wow. man. But, you know, that's where I'm lucky at being tall. 58 centimeter and above usually go for cheaper than, let's say, a 55 to 57, that medium yep. bike frame size. And so, you know, with, like, mountain bikes, if you're riding, like, a 21-inch, usually it costs a little less than if you were on that 17-and-a-half-inch. So uh, seeing that track bike, I knew right by the head tube, because you can kind of always see the, the geometry of it. I was like, I either know that's a 58 or 59. And sure enough, he was like, yeah, 68. And how much more for it? He's like, 80 bucks. I'm like, okay. Yep. Bought that right up. And it's kind of a funny story about that. So I bought the bike. I bought the frame. I brought it home. I started ordering parts on eBay and then some parts I had in my garage, just kind of like piecing it together, which I don't require too many parts, you know, set of wheels, cranks and chain, you're good to go. But I, I was so bummed out because about a month prior to that swap meet, I had a 1985 Lotus Sprint. And the Lotus isn't the same company as the car company. I believe it was a, like a Japanese bicycle manufacturer. But the Lotus Sprint was made in Taiwan. I don't know. It was, it was weird. But basically, it was a bike frame that was built for New York City bike messengers in the 80s. So it was like track dropouts. Right, so it didn't have the vertical dropouts for derailers. It was like a BMX style dropout, so you can adjust that single speed paint. It was tight geometry, you know, like a track bike, but it did have brake holes in in the the frames. So you could run front and rear calipers if you wanted to. And I was so psyched on this. I, I went to DC. I met this guy outside of DC. It was an old he was an old bike messenger from Philadelphia, but he was living in DC. He had this old bike. 58 centimeter. It was like pink. So it was super cool, just like kind of flashy color to ride around on. And I rode it one time and I, I think it was a 49 17 gear ratio. And the light turned green at a traffic light 
I went and pedaled hard, which you know that, I mean, being single speed, it's going to put a lot of pressure on it. And I snapped the down tube out of the bottom bracket. The whole, the whole bike went limp. I was so embarrassed. I thought I snapped the chain. I was like, what the hell just happened to this bike? I looked down, and I see the, the brazen for the down tube through the lug on the bottom bracket snapped right out. And I'm like, well, I guess this is why I don't ride old bikes. <laughs> so the bike hung up until that swap meet came around, and I was able to kind of, you know, piece together this Cape Anardi. So I've been riding that. Uh, I've dented frames and bent frames. I've never snapped a frame. I felt, I was like embarrassed because I was about two and a half miles from the car. So of course I had to do that like awkward walk back with the bike. And because the down tube came apart, it also bent the top tube. And I guess it's probably been through hell if it was a, if it was like a New York City to Philly to DC. I mean, that, those are some rough roads. So, and then you put, you put me on that thing and that thing didn't stand a chance. And so no luck on that one, but, uh, but oh well, it, it forced me into this new one, and, and because of the coronavirus, you know, instead of going to the gym in the mornings, which I really like to do, that's a kind, of, kind of like my alone time is go to the gym. Well, since it closed down, I load my bike on top of the car, and I'll go to my little downtown area before I head up to my shop to work on cars. I'll go to this little downtown area, pull the bike off. There's no traffic. I get to put in at least like five to ten miles every morning. I'll grab a coffee. I mean, I feel like I'm in, like a little Italy or something. I got my bike back. I'm drinking coffee in the morning. It's quiet. All the birds are out. So even though that this is a crazy time we're living in and it's super depressing and all these people are dying and getting sick, we can find these little pieces of serenity throughout the day and try to just a silver lining to the badness. And that's kind of the silver lining. I'm still supporting this little coffee shop that allows me to kind of bring the bike in, lean it against their window, wear my mask order coffee, give a tip as much as the coffee costs, come out, enjoy the coffee, and then head on my way to work. So it's still like a little therapy session that you get to do. What's cool about it too is like, yeah, riding can be a way of therapy, but also I found that building the bicycles are too. Just wrenching in the garage, just turning a wrench by yourself, listening to music, taking a wheel set from here and some cranks from over here, putting together something. There's something awesome about that. And when you said that you're a science teacher, and obviously, you know, school's been all haywire right now, you found a way to survive and, like, do a side hustle. And you had enough inventory to put together all these bikes to get people back out there, keeping them in shape, keeping them happy and sane. I mean, you don't know what you may have done. You may have saved somebody somehow just by getting them out on that bike. And it was all because you had enough to kind of share and put out there and also a little way to put some cash in your pocket. So it's pretty cool. Some people just shrivel up and I don't know what to do and they get all upset and then they, they close down. But it's kind of that adapt or die mentality. And I can see it with the car people. You know, if, if you have a skill, if you can work on bikes or cars, you can work on a lot of things and you can build a lot of things with your hands and put together things that actually turn that talent has into a money-making profit. So it's kind of cool. So with that in mind, we're yeah. both bike-loving guys. We both love getting people out there and making connections. Yeah. Why doesn't Discovery Channel have a show about bicycles? Oh, <laughs> let's see. That's, that's a slippery slope right there. Why don't they have, 
You know, how do I word this correctly? Um, Discovery Channel. You know, there's a lot of things that people are interested in throughout this world. And cycling is massive. And we have not had a good bike show out there. And it always comes down to like two or three people that make these decisions. Okay. Millions of, it could be millions of people in this country that are into road bikes, or mountain bikes. And why don't we see that on television? Why can't we have a show talking about, you know, even the bicycle market? That's a huge market. And I know Mike Wolf has really pushed the envelope on that. And it's really interesting. But I bet you he's still, you know, kicking the wall because they cut out some really cool fives or when he really starts getting technical about a certain American-made piece of equipment. A little tangent I want to run on for just a second is uh, I just became an ambassador for the motorcycle company Royal Enfield, which started in the U.K., and now they're manufacturing bikes in India, and they're one of the largest motorcycle manufacturers in the world. And they're just making a big comeback here in America because they redesigned their motor and their frame over in the UK and they're manufacturing them in India to keep the prices down and then we're getting them over here. But Royal Enfield started off as a bicycle company and their motto was built like a gun. And I started, like, I didn't know that. So as I became an ambassador, my, I always researched the history of the brand. Where did they come from? I'll buy their old books and old magazines just to get some ideas going. And when I found out they were a bicycle company, I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. If I can find an old, you know, old Enfield bicycle, that's just going to be the top. I became an ambassador for the clothing brand Chrome Industries. You've probably mm-hmm. heard of them because of the Chrome Messenger bags, and they're, they're big influencing on, like, the Messenger scene. And they're one of the main companies to put together a bike messenger relief fund because a lot of bike messengers don't have health, health insurance. And they get injured, and Chrome actually will help with your medical bills and payments and everything and also give you, like, a 50%, you know, pro rate on anything that they sell as long as you have your bike messenger card. So it, I thought that company was just everything, and I told them, yeah, I know I'm on a TV show for Discovery Channel that doesn't have anything to do with cycling, but on my social media, I do a lot of bike riding, and I'd love to be a part of anything. So we've kind of collabed on some things, and they've been a great company to work with, too. You said there was a discovery, you discovered some type of picking, you found a bunch of old cars out somewhere, and then there was some bikes as well. That's right, yeah. So um, if you go to my my Instagram page, it's uh, official Chris Stevens, and you can go down to like a couple of posts. A couple weeks ago, I did a video, I put it up on YouTube, of this amazing car. It's not a junkyard, it's not open to the public, it's a private collection of cars buried in the woods. And... Over 500 cars, probably close to 1,000 cars. And it's not just normal cars. These are rare cars. A lot of Porsches, Porsche 356s, 911Ts. There's Opals back there, vintage Volvos. Things from the 80s, too, like BMW 5 Series, 7 Series. There's old AMXs and AMCs and Javelins and Cadillacs and gorgeous stuff. And I've been there maybe five or six times. I've gone there. I've brought some photographers to this little secret location. And each time I go there, I find something new. And there was one time I opened up, they had these 18-wheeler, like these semi-truck trailers, way back in the woods. And I was able to get a couple of those those barn doors open up on them, and I'd see all these bike frames. Now, I could tell by the way the bike frames were. They were rusty, and they, the way the rims were and everything, I could tell they were probably like from the 50s or 60s. Could be worth money. I'd have to look at maybe like the head badges and see if there's anything cool on it. But as we're kind of 
kicking around and looking at things, there's an old barn. There's a couple of old barns. And the barn door is about 15 feet off the ground. And so we kind of made this log. We climbed up the log. I helped my buddy up. And we get inside the barn. And mind you, people haven't been in this barn in probably 30 years. So it was a little sketchy. A lot of raccoon crap everywhere. And there was, it was weird birds flying around in there. But one of the first things I saw was a, uh, I guess it was a GT Interceptor BMX bike from the late 80s. So I was like, well, that's strange. That bike couldn't only been like 88 or 89, like judging by the decals. And then next to that was like an old Mongoose, California, and that was probably 83 or 84. I thought that was super cool because it was in the barn. They were both pro-Molly frames. They were probably the owner's kids at the time. Then they get stuffed away and then never to be seen again. I mean, I always let it be because, obviously, you know, I probably shouldn't be poking around there anyway. So I always let everything be. So they're still in there, and I'm sure there's still a lot more bikes. But every time you go look at the cars, you always find bikes, too. Uh, maybe, I don't know why that is, maybe if you collect cars, you'll also collect anything, and bicycles kind of make their way into the woods and into the junkyard. So I have pulled some cool stuff out of out of places before, but nothing like, nothing, nothing big money. But, yeah, there'll, there'll be some cool finds. A couple of years ago, I was collecting BMX again. You know, I was, I was chasing that youth, that I had. So if in the mid nineties, you know, my, my dream bike in the mid nineties, it was a, called an S and M Holmes, which is a Santa Ana, California mm-hmm. brand. They're still around today. And that was my dream bike. I couldn't afford it. You know, when I was older, I bought my dream bike at 1996 S and M Holmes, where they, most BMX bikes switched to the one and one eight head tube. So like a threadless fork. I thought that was the coolest. I know when you collect BMX, you want quill stem. And I was like, no, I remember giving those kind of bikes away. Hutch Tripstars, I remember having two of those. And I was like, these things are goofy. You weld it on pegs and these weird cases to step on. I was like, no, no, no. I wanted the all-chrome, 21-inch top tube, S&M Holmes, Redless Fork. So I bought it. Yeah, you know, I put period correct profile crank arms on it, and I had GT Mohawk hubs and Odyssey T1000 rims. I built it exactly like I wanted it as a kid. So now I had that bike on display. I had a couple of other, you know, weird track bikes, BMX bikes, 24-inch cruiser bikes. And then I looked at it one day. I go, what am I doing with all these bikes? I don't ride them. I pull them out. They don't have a scratch on them. The tires still have, like, the little rubber nubs on them. I was like, no, I'll sell those. And I kind of made, like, a promise to myself that I'm only going to keep the bikes that I ride. So I kind of thinned the herd. Sold them all off, made made some decent money, got all my money back out of it, and now I have, you know, one mountain bike, one track bike, a cycle cost bike that I've converted to be like a gravel bike, so it's got like some fatter tires and more comfier bars, and then my BMX bike. So. The week of everything closing down, like yeah. the Saturday before that, I was planning on buying a mountain bike. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of like, I see the world start to burn, and I'm like, I'm going to go to the bike shop before they close. (laughs) I come back with a salsa timber jack, and it's my first first air fork. It's a good single-track mountain bike, and I I didn't have one for a while. I got rid of one to afford a 
a cross bike and then I'm like I kind of miss single track a little bit and if I get held up for a while I want to be able to go out into the woods and go riding so I've got cross bike too I've got a, a touring bike I've got you know an old vintage 10 speed that's updated uh mountain bike a bike for every type of riding it, it is nice to be able to have those options when you want to go out you know yeah same thing I, I purchased my first full suspension bike right before the corona thing was happening and that's like a 2017 transition smuggler so it's like 29er wheels 130 suspension in the front 115 in the back and it's a blast you know riding that thing but still you know grabbing the single speed bike and just going downtown is still the easiest for me you know i don't have to worry about adjusting the gears or make sure the brakes work because i don't you know i don't ride brakes on the bike and just kind of go and they're super fast and ton of fun so you have to try one out if you get you ever get a chance to ride like a i have a fixie i have a um it's a death fork bike so the viscount aerospace from the 70s they made these amazing steel frames but they had aluminum forks and they were one of the first companies with aluminum forks but they snapped sometimes so they got this reputation as being the death fork and it's, okay. it's one of the earliest episodes uh you talk about the death fork it's like it's like a cult now to have the death fork stuff i got people just started bringing me them and yeah. i i i got like all these death forks now and nobody ever died on one but they still call it the death fork but i put a regular fork on it I put a steel fork on it it's so crazy light it's amazing and that's my fixed gear so it's got a flip-flop hub in the back yeah and uh it's, it's great you know I, I put brakes on because you know i have a family and right. uh, oh, yeah. but i don't use them as much it's fun it takes about it takes about five minutes and then it's like oh yeah this is totally natural right it, it's pretty natural and like i we had such a big scene out here especially like 2007 2008 and I'd put together these bike rides every Sunday. We'd all ride track bikes, six-year bikes. And you would see people getting into it, too. Like, oh, I want I want one, you know? And then they'd come to me, and I would tell them, like, oh, this is the size you need. And you don't realize the influence you have on people sometimes, you know? Like, when you have, like, a Facebook page dedicated to it, you got all these people riding. And then you, like, maybe, maybe you want to be a part of that group. So they'll buy a bike and get into that group. I remember there was this one guy, his name was Dave something, but big guy. I mean, he was probably 300 pounds. And he wanted to use riding a bike as a way to lose all that weight. And it was it was kind of working. But he was doing it on a single-speed bike, fixed gear. And I always told people, don't pull off the brakes unless you are a 1,000% confident that you can stop on a dime. Because it's the car door that's going to wreck you not the traffic light coming up because you can prepare for that. It's the car door that's going to open up and you, you're going to get doored. Be careful. And I saw a lot of guys rip their brakes off and then they can't ride fast because they're too nervous about learning how to skid and properly lock up the tire or making sure that the cog is even tight enough, which is another thing. And this big guy would ride and sure enough, he went into D.C. one day without us and he had the brakes removed. He may have had a front brake but somebody crossed the crosswalk. He didn't see it. And he went over the bars, hit his head, and died on the spot. Oh and it really, really hurt the whole cycling community for us because we didn't know he went down to D.C. to ride without us. We didn't know he wasn't wearing a helmet because 
some guys were dumb and wouldn't wear a helmet on these bikes. And if you look at the bike messengers, they always rock a helmet. And they do that for a reason. Because it's not you. It's not the they're, – they're not worried about their skill level. They're worried about that car that pulls out in front of you or the door that opens. It's the other idiots that are out there. So you have to wear a helmet. And, like, right after that, that – and I didn't want to get on a bike for weeks. I just felt bad. Like, is this, like – you know, is it something that we did as, as this fixed-gear community? Like, did we influence him a certain way that he wanted to get out there and ride? Or was it just his way of trying to get exercise and not being on the proper bikes? You know, he should have been on a, a freewheel bike with a brake. So I feel bad about that. And then one July 4th, we were all riding from our downtown to go see the fireworks. And I put together, like, a Frankenstein bike. It was a lugged road bike that I converted to single speed at my shop I welded this huge front like metal rack to the fork so I could haul beer <laughs> and we are all having a good time riding to go see the July 4th and I brought my fiance with me at the time and she was on a single speed British bike and some guy that we were in a group with clipped her front tire she went down on the road and broke her arm to a compound fracture so the bone was out of her arm. And that scared the living crap out of me because I, I was in front by quite a ways. We're probably a group of 20 people. And I heard all this commotion. I turned around and she's on the ground. And sure enough, there's a compound fracture. I told her not to look at it. Her arm was completely 90 degrees, broken. And the bone came through in two parts of her skin. So, you know, I also try to teach people, like, make sure that, you know, when you're riding a bike, to always have your head on a swivel, always wear a helmet. You know, if you're riding mountain bikes, wear safety glasses because you don't want a branch to go into your eye and all these things. So, you know, it you may not look as cool doing it, but I promise you, I'm going to pick on you if you're wearing that. You know, you just throw that thing on and it can save your life. I ride with this one dude. He's He's, he's an older dude, but he was a bike messenger his whole life. Still is today. And he jumped on a friend's BMX bike and just rode to the bottom of this hill in D.C. and lost control of the bike because it didn't have brakes. And he went over, hit his head, and he was in a coma for two weeks. I had to go visit him in the hospital. So it's, you know, you could be the best rider in the world. And then here I was over my my friend's hospital bed, and I gave him a T-shirt. It didn't fit him because he lost all this weight over two weeks because he hit his head on his friend's BMX bike. So it's, you never know when it's going to happen. You have to wear a helmet. So I thanked him, and as I usually do, I asked him about where people could find out more about him on social media. All right, so yeah, Instagram, at official Chris Stevens, and same thing with my Facebook page. And I'm not like these other people that are on television. If you send me a DM, I will respond to it. And if you got any like kind of cool stories you want to share with me, or any bikes that you're working on, I love all types of bikes, whether it's BMX, road, even like, you know, the fixed gear scene or mountain bike scene, whatever it is, send it to me. Or if you find like a cool score and you're like, damn, look what I just picked up. You know, that those are the, those are the fun stories, those little hidden gems that sometimes the hunt is the favorite part. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing some stories. Of course, Tom. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be catching all the other episodes. I always download it to my phone and listen to it when I'm in the car because that's, you know, boring driving. I'd rather 
listen to podcasts and like if I can't be on a bike, I might as well listen about biking. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Catch you guys. See you. And now for the mid-roll thank yous. Thank you very much for almost 70,000 downloads in over 70 countries around the world. I'm so very grateful to folks tuning in. For following on Podbean, I'd like to thank Paul Wall 59 RanKurt2, PBGFF367BWXYX, thanks for following. like to thank Commuter with a K for the great review on iTunes, really helps us. Like to give a shout out to Dirty Dave McGowan, one word on Instagram, who is doing the Tour de Pants. It's a long bike ride that you can do in regular pants. And he's got some cool stickers that he did a sticker swap with me. And anybody who's followed or left a positive review anywhere that I haven't mentioned, I really do appreciate it all. And hopefully I will get to mentioning you at some point. A big thank you to everybody who's shared stories that haven't made it on yet. It is a blessing and a curse to have such huge reserves of quality content ready to go. It just means that I have to process it all. Just because it takes a long time doesn't mean I don't greatly appreciate it. Also, I was pleasantly surprised to see my old boss, Matt Cheney, had signed up on Patreon. And that's to help the show. If you want to give even as little as a dollar a month, it'll help me pay for the show and all the extra things like stickers and stuff like that. Just go to patreon.com and search up Bike Karma. And speaking of which, here's a message from our number one supporter of the show, Fred Thomas with the Frame and Wheel and AD Bikes. Hi there, everybody. Fred Thomas here at Frame and Wheel, and it's summer, and you have better things to do than to spend your free time trying to get your bike gear sold. Let Frame and Wheel do that work for you. We just sold a specialized Vita hybrid bike. It was listed for less than 24 hours before a buyer in Michigan snapped it up. We also just sold a Wahoo Kicker Smart Trainer to a buyer in Washington State, and I can say that you definitely have better things to do than to figure out how to pack and ship a 50-pound chunk of steel. But this is what we do, and cyclists from all over the country and the world buy from Frame and Wheel because they know that we do a great job with getting items cleaned up, imaged clearly, described accurately, and shipped quickly. And they pay up for that. So let Frame and Wheel extract the value that remains in your old gear, and you can just go ride. Please check out our website and social media platforms for some great new videos, and please reach out to me with any questions. Time, space, cash. Pick three. Please go give Fred a follow at his website or any of the social media that you're on. And if you're in the market for something, check out his used gear exchange. That's the frame and wheel. So back in December, I was lucky enough to go travel with my family to France. And we thought it was tough at the time because there was a transportation strike going on. Little did we know what was coming. So we were very lucky to get away on a family vacation for the holidays. We went to the palace at Versailles and it was an amazing experience all around. Just beautiful and such a history to it. Very haunting to think about the revolution that was there and just how old all the buildings are. My favorite part was 
probably the catacombs. Even though I know that's a little gruesome, it was amazing. But anyway, after we toured the palace at Versailles, I found a cool little bike shop just very close to the palace. And I know the mission of this show is to bring people together from around the world. Sometimes there's a language barrier and I really wish that I could speak more languages. I tried my best to learn some French before and parler français, uh, very little. I uh, kept mixing up with my Spanish that I learned in college. I got an app on my phone which taught me how to ask if the horse was enjoying his pizza. I don't know why that was supposed to be helpful, but I was so impressed that so many people People in France were willing to communicate in English and not only that but they had the ability to so this gentleman who owned the shop he wasn't super confident at first in his language but once we started talking about bicycles we got it it helped to fill in so many of the gaps we all have that guy on the group ride who doesn't listen so across an ocean and with the barrier of language we were able to have a moment and connect as bike riding human beings so as you listen to this next segment please realize how much i appreciate this dude taking the effort to be open and share a story with me and if you're ever in versailles go check out the pure velo p-u-r-v-e-l-o bicycle shop it's a very friendly shop with a lot of good local information but here's his story uh, my name is uh, Lionel Rivoulet, Lionel, if you prefer, in English. Okay. <laughs> I own, um, I, I own um, a bike shop in Versailles. So uh, I have a little story to say, uh, to tell you. Um, it's about on uh, our ride uh, in spring and summer. We do some ride around Versailles uh, with some customers, and uh, one time. We have an Italian guy uh, who came with us and um, we do some mountain bike and we ride for about one hour and we go on a little single track just along the river, uh, a little river and we say to him be very careful, it could be very dangerous. So we go, um, we go on, the, on the single track and I was in um, the last one, I closed the, I closed the ride and we don't see, we don't see the, the other one. So, uh, and I heard a big, vo- big noise. Uh, Sometime was screaming. And uh, when I go, when I just after return, I find my customer in, in the river with the water uh, uh, on the on the knees. He tried to climb up on the on the single track. In fact, he was fall he fall in uh, in the river, and it was completely wet. So. <laughs> He, he was a little bit disappointed, but uh, we can uh, we can invite uh, to 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 laugh. Uh, it was very funny, really. But uh, the customers we never seen him again, really. <laughs> it was too dangerous. But we have uh, we have sometimes something. It was the the the, the, the craziest because uh, usually the customer we are uh, are very careful and we are very uh, very careful about our customers. It's very important security for us too but this time it was very funny because he doesn't uh, I think he, because he was Italian doesn't speak very well French and uh, it haven't uh, he haven't uh, heard us uh, to uh, when we prevent them 
uh, him from sorry sorry for my English uh, to bring your, your English is very good yeah, I wish really? I could speak ah. French as well as you do speak ah. English thank you and uh, you, it was very very funny but I think it's a bit best story of my summer and <laughs> and I we uh, I wish I can can uh, live some moment like this in the future I don't know why I was surprised by this, but apparently near Versailles, this huge palace, huge grounds and huge palace, near there, not too far away, not there, but near there, is some amazing mountain biking. So of course we already talked about cycling in the city, but France has a lot of great opportunities for mountain biking as well. Oh, okay. And the shop? Uh, so the shop is uh, not very far from the castle, from the palace. Uh, it's about, uh, it's just around, um, close to the uh, Marché Notre-Dame. It's the biggest uh, marketplace in Versailles. Uh, if you do some guide tour with a uh, with bike, it exists in, in Versailles. You can do that in summer. Uh, you can easily find us because uh, we are on the, on the way to go, uh, to, on the way between the station and the, and the marketplace. So it's very easy to find us, and the name of the shop is Pure Velo. <laughs> you can find us on your own, our uh, Facebook pages, and uh, we have also a website. Uh, there's a little bit text in English, so we try to <laughs> we try to speak English. It's very important because in Versailles there's a lot of tourists. So if you want to go about mountain biking and you're near Versailles, stop by the shop first and get some good advice on that. Ah, yeah, of it's course. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 they can they can go here. We are two uh, two of us speak English, so it's very uh, easy for them to to go there, and we can um, we give uh, give them some uh, some tracks to do uh, to have the good points, the good spot uh, to mountain bike around Versailles. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Merci. De rien. <laughs> Well, you've reached the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I've been your host, Tom Brown. I'd like to thank all my guests in this episode. I'd like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mob Jack for our opening and closing theme music, which this week has been augmented with the sounds of Lake Champlain. You can check them out at mobjackmusic.com or search them up on Keller Glass to hear some more recent stuff. All the other music used on the podcast is royalty and attribute free, and we thank those musicians as well. If you have a question, comment, story that you'd like to share on the show, you can contact me through direct message on any of the social media, or you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. You can also contact me there if you have a product or message or event that you'd like to promote on the show. Also, please check out my Patreon site. Go to patreon.com and search up Bike Karma. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help out the show. At this point, it's really just all about helping me cover expenses, and I appreciate everybody who's done that. The Bike Karma podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright, trademark, etc., etc., are asserted and reserved. I know it's summer and we're all out relaxing, but we should always do our ABC quick checks. That's A for air, B for brakes, C for everything in the chain line. Quick is for the quick releases and to do a quick overall check of your bicycle. You want to make sure that the wheels are on solidly, regardless of what type of connection you use. It's, it's a through axle or bolt-on or a quick release. 
and then just give your bike a quick overall look before you go barreling down a giant hill. So thanks a lot for coming along for the ride. Stories about ragbri, revitalizing old saddles, touring across the United States with a child, and a guy who went around the world and made it into the Guinness Book. And Liz will read another episode of Billy's Bicycle Triumphs. All of these things and a lot more are in the pipeline. So until next time, keep it wheeling.